0: If you remember last week, we examined a passage in which Jesus had warned about allowing our minds to be overtaken by sexual lust. Now this week, we're going to learn that God hates divorce. And he hates it because divorce is, first of all, a violation of the oath that we take before God in our marriage. But it also destroys the one flesh order that God ordains in marriage. And so he hates it and so today you and I are going to learn as the psalmist said in Psalm 97:10 that if we love God, we must hate evil. And divorce is an evil, and so you and I as believers in Jesus Christ want to develop a hatred of divorce in our own lives so that we do not succumb to it. That's what we're going to learn here today. Now, I want to begin today by looking at something that Jesus quotes from or alludes to in Deuteronomy 24. In our passage, Jesus is going to be correcting a misunderstanding from Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 3, excuse me, 1 through 4. So please turn your Bibles there, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. And so I want you to turn your Bibles there, and as you do so, I'll make a couple of, comments about why it's significant first of all it is significant because jesus will allude to deuteronomy 24 1 about divorce and particularly the certificate of divorce that moses would give he's going to allude to that here in matthew 5 but also again in matthew chapter 19 so let me read it and we'll explain what the issue is notice here deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4 moses said this It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter husband dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Now let me explain what the issue is in this text. It really focuses, I'm going to pull up my pointer here, on two different views that were common in Jesus' day regarding this passage. The first view Of Deuteronomy 24 would have been held by that rabbinical teacher Hallel and those who would have followed him and they would say that Deuteronomy 24 sanctions or another way of saying that is permits or allows a man to divorce his wife for any reason maybe another way of saying it is that it approves of it that was the common view in Jesus day that the reason Moses gave a certificate of divorce in the passage we just read is because God's approving of divorce. But Jesus is going to show us, no, that's not a good reading of Deuteronomy 24. This is Jesus' reading, and therefore it's the right one. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, only allows for the aftermath of divorce and is designed to protect the woman from mistreatment and the land from frivolous divorce. Dear ones, what Jesus is going to show us today is that Deuteronomy 24 never allows for divorce, rather it was designed to limit the damage caused by divorce. And we see this when we come to Matthew chapter 19. Jesus is going to reiterate this very concept. In fact, do you remember in Genesis 19, 6, Jesus gives us his vision for what marriage has been and what it should always be, one man, one woman becoming one flesh. And he says, therefore, what God has put together, let no man separate. Well, remember in the very next verse, Matthew nineteen seven, the disciples say, hey, why is it then, Jesus, that Moses granted a certificate of divorce in the passage we just read, Deuteronomy 24, 1? And do you remember how Jesus responded? We'll come to this in our teaching. But he said, this is because of your hardness of heart that God allowed you to divorce your wives. But then he says the most important verse in this whole discussion, but from the beginning, it was not so. Dear today, Jesus is going to show us that the true intention God has for marriage is that there would be a preservation of one man and one woman who become one flesh. Deuteronomy 24, never approved of divorce. It only limited the damage caused by divorce. And that's what we're going to be looking at. Now, there's one more thing. I'm sorry, I'm giving you a long introduction before we get into the only two verses that we're covering. But I also want you to see Something from Josephus, I have a quote from Josephus who shows us a very important fact, and that is, in Jesus' day in the ancient Near East, if a man did not grant a certificate of divorce to his wife, there was big problems for her. Why? Because in the culture of the day, labor was very physical. You couldn't just get a job at the Seven Eleven. It was very physical work. And a woman, if she was not connected to a man, would often be left destitute and so if the marriage certificate or i'm sorry the certificate of divorce is not granted she would more than likely be destitute and so i want you to see here this quote from josephus who tells us about this bill of divorce that moses is talking about in deuteronomy 24 1 now here josephus is talking about salome salome was the sister of herod the great and she ended up marrying a guy named costobros and she ends up divorcing him Notice what it says. It says, but sometime afterward, when Salome happened to quarrel with Kostoboros, she sent him a bill of divorce and dissolved her marriage with him, though this was not according to the Jewish laws, says Josephus. For with us, it is lawful for the husband to do so. But a wife, if she departs from her husband, cannot of herself be married to another unless her former husband put her away. So notice here, I want you to see in Josephus' words, he's describing the way the culture was in Jesus' day. A woman could not be married to another. She could not get remarried unless the husband put her away. And part of putting her away was giving her what? The certificate of divorce that Moses alluded to in Deuteronomy 24.1. That was the importance of that text. Again, the text was designed not for God to approve of divorce, but to limit the damage caused by it. That's the point. And so, dear ones, Jesus, as we approach here now, Matthew 5, wants us to see once again, God's true intention of marriage is the joining of one man, one woman, becoming one flesh, and never to be separated. That's God's great design. Notice what Jesus said. He, first of all, alludes to Deuteronomy 24.1. Jesus says, It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, dear ones, it's interesting to note here, as Jesus cites Deuteronomy 24, one, he does not give us the next three verses. And I think there's two reasons for that. Number one, his audience would have been well aware of this text. They would have had it memorized. But the second reason I think he does so is he wants to focus on the certificate of divorce. Because again, in Jesus' day, the average Jew said, well, yeah, Moses approved of it. After all, he gives us a certificate of divorce. Therefore, divorce is no big deal. Divorce is allowed. And so what Jesus is going to have to do is he, in verse 32, is going to pull the rug out from underneath the popular misconception that God approves of divorce. And again, he is going to show us God's original intention of marriage. Now, notice in verse 32, where he says, but I say to you, this is Jesus. Remember, he's the lawgiver meeting the people on the mountain, just like God did in Israel. He says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. I want to look at that exception clause with you for just a moment. Notice in the box, the term unchastity. That is the term pornea, or the term that we have for pornography. It's sexual immorality in general. And so what I want you to understand is here, Jesus is not giving an exception clause so that a man has a reason to divorce his wife. Instead, what Jesus is saying is that if the woman, or for that matter, a man, would cheat on their spouse sexually, pornea, they've already created a divorce. Let me say that again. Jesus is not giving an exception clause. So, hey, a man can be free to divorce. He's explaining that if a woman or a man would have sexual immorality outside of marriage, they've already created the divorce. Why? Because a marriage is the union of one man, one woman who become one flesh. And so it's the person who cheated that created the divorce in the first place. Now, a couple of questions that I think flow from this text. Number one, how does a man who divorces his wife make his wife commit adultery? Why does Jesus say that? And second, why is the man in this text not considered an adulterer and only his wife is? Well, first of all, the way a man makes his wife commit adultery by divorcing her, again, what is marriage? It's the union of one man, one woman who become one flesh. And so as the man demands the separation, he is forcing his wife to leave that relationship all the while she had made an oath to God that she would keep that relationship all the days of her life. He's forcing her into sin. And so the irony is when we ask the question, why does Jesus not call the man an adulterer here, only the woman, because he's reserving something far worse for the man? Remember when we get to Matthew 18, 7, Jesus says, yes, there will be stumbling blocks that come into this world, but woe to the man who is the stumbling block. A stumbling block is someone who causes others to sin, and that's exactly how the man is being portrayed here. He's being portrayed as the one who's causing the sin. That's as low as it gets. He's the one who's causing it. And so, yes, he's an adulterer, but he's something even worse, He's a stumbling block. That's evil. Now, I also want to ask the question, notice he says after this, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Why would that be? Why would it be a problematic for a man to marry a divorced woman? Again, let's go to the concept, one man, one woman in marriage become one flesh. Any f- future breaking of that arrangement or a man or a woman becomes yoked to another is adultery. It's Sinning against god now as I say that I know that there are those in here That have been remarried don't worry about it. We're going to come to various scenarios later But what I want you to build in your mind Is just how important it is to jesus who created marriage. He's god To preserve the union of one man and one woman who become one flesh. in our applications We'll talk about yes, you just be faithful in the marriage you're in That's what we're going to learn. Why? Because you want to preserve now the union of one man and one woman becoming one flesh. But, dear ones, that's how seriously we're to take marriage. It is an oath before God, and he takes a very dim view of those who go against their commitments that they have made before him. Now, one more thing I want to talk about before we get into our applications, and that is I want to talk about how liberal scholars try to claim that there is some form of hypocrisy in this text, that there's some sort of contradiction between Matthew and the synoptic Gospels. Let me explain what the issue is. Here in Matthew 5:32, I want to read that exception clause again. Remember, we saw it. Jesus said, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The liberal theologian will point out, hey, there's an exception clause here in Matthew 5.32, but in the parallel passages in Mark 10.11 and in Luke 16.18, there's no exception clause. And so the liberal scholar will say, aha, Jesus allows for divorce in Matthew, but he doesn't elsewhere. There's a contradiction in the scripture. For example, here in Mark 10.11, notice what is conspicuously absent. It's a parallel passage. It says, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. Okay, now, again, conspicuously absent is the exception clause. But here's what we have to think about. Again, I pointed this out in the previous slide. When Jesus gives the exception clause, is he giving an exception so that a man may divorce his wife? No. He's simply saying that in her unchastity, pornea, she's already committed divorce. There's already been a divorce because of her cheating. So Jesus isn't sanctioning or giving an exception clause. He's saying there's already been a divorce. That is explicit in Matthew, but it's implicit in both Mark and Luke, and therefore there's no contradiction at all. Dear ones, the important thing to get right here is Jesus wants to preserve one man, one woman, becoming one flesh. Now, it's also interesting to note the term divorce that you see in all these texts What's very interesting, that term apoluo, meaning to be released, oftentimes in our New Testament, it's a very exciting thing or very happy occasion where apoluo is used. For example, in Luke 2.29, it's used of righteous Simeon being released, apoluo, to go home to be with the Lord because he had seen messianic salvation. In Luke 13.12, a woman who had a disease all of her life, Apoluo, is released from it, from the power of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Revelation 1.5, a smaller form of Apoluo, just luo, is used, where Jesus Christ releases us believers from our sins. So Apoluo is it's accentuating all these happy occasions, but all of a sudden it's used in perhaps the saddest occasion that any human being could be a part of. Where you made a commitment before God to say that I will be united to my spouse until the day I die, and you violate it and release them. It's the saddest of all circumstances. And so, brothers and sisters, what you and I are called to do, I believe, in these passages, is really garner a hatred of the dividing of what God has put together, one man, one woman becoming one flesh, that we would develop a hatred of divorce in our heart, as it says in Psalm 97.10, because we love God, we hate that which is evil. Let us be those who are therefore committed to our marriages. Let us be those who are therefore committed to seeing other people's marriages preserved between one man and one woman who become one flesh. Let us be that kind of people. That's what Jesus is calling us to be. Okay, now with that, I've got a couple application points that I think flow from this text. Number one, we must understand that adultery involves the breaking of our commitments before God. And in particular, I want you to see the relationship between our spiritual adultery, leaving the God of the Bible, and physical adultery. And i think you'll be blown away ...as to how one leads to the other. Number two, we must take seriously the need to preserve the one flesh status of marriage. And we'll talk about different scenarios... ...and we'll look at how the wisdom of keeping one flesh will keep us from sin. Okay, let's begin with number one. I want everyone to see the concept of adultery from God's perspective. And I want us to think about how there really is a connection between spiritual adultery and really all other sin, but specifically with physical adultery. Now, let me begin by showing you a passage from Jeremiah 3.9, and I'll make the, the connection. Jeremiah 3.9, the prophet said this regarding Israel. He said, because of the lightness of her harlotry, literally, I think it's best rendered, because she, Israel, took her harlotry lightly, she wasn't serious about being faithful, it was too light on her to cheat on God, What did she do, Israel? She polluted the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. Brothers and sisters, remember the first commandment. What is the first one? It's thou shall have no other gods before me. I want you to think about what is the commitment that we're making in marriage, that I will have no other spouses, no other partners before this one. Are you with me? And so, is it not incongruous then to say, yes, I belong to the God of Israel, and I vow all my life to have no other gods before him, but meanwhile, I'm going to be cheating and having various spouses. No, that's, that's very hypocritical. That's incongruous. It's not in keeping the phrase that we see in the military, unbecoming an officer and a gentleman. That is unbecoming a Christian. How can you and I say, yes, Oh, God, I'm going to be faithful to you and have no other gods. But by the way, I'm going to have plenty of different spouses, plenty of different partners. No. If you're not faithful in the small things, you're not going to be faithful in the big things. Think of it this way. Let me show you another passage here. And from Ezekiel 23:37, I want you to see that breaking our commitments lead to other sins. In adultery. Notice Ezekiel 23:37 regarding Israel, it said, "For they have committed adultery, and blood is on their hands, thus they have committed adultery with their idols, and even caused their sons, whom they bore to me, to pass through the fire to them as food." That is evil. Think about the spiritual adultery of Israel led to all sorts of sins, so does physical adultery. So does physical adultery. Ask the lawyer, which court is it that's often the most vicious? They'll say the divorce court. Ask the police officer the call that's the most dangerous. It's the domestic one, the domestic call. Oh yes, as spiritual adultery leads leads to all sorts of sins, even the murder of their children, certainly physical adultery often leads to them as well. That's what often happens. Now, I want you to think about how there's another commandment that is at stake if you and I don't keep our marital commitments, and that's the third commandment. Remember, the third commandment says, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. And for many, many years, in fact, to this day, if you go to Israel, the average Israelite believes that commandment is violated if you take the Lord's name upon your lips and you use it. So if you go to Israel, they will not mention the term Yahweh. Because they believe if they do, they're taking his name in vain. I would suggest to you that that is not a good reading of what the third commandment is ultimately about. Now, I'm not saying we should use the Lord's name in a frivolous way upon our lips. That is part of it. But the main issue with taking the Lord's name in vain is to say, I belong to the Holy One of Israel, yet I live like a pagan. That's exactly what Israel did. We belong to Yahweh, but by the way, we'll make our children die with Moloch too. We're going to live no different than the pagans, and therefore we bring disrepute upon God's name. Again, dear ones, the pagan culture, they trade in their spouses for the new model. But if you and I are going to do that, we're bringing disrepute upon God's name. How dare you and I say that, no, we're faithful against spiritual adultery if we're committing physical adultery. You and I are misrepresenting the name of the Holy One of Israel. And so this is why when we get to the next section in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five thirty three, Jesus knows the hardness of our heart, the frailties of humanity, and he will warn us against making oaths at all. But marriage is an oath that God has instituted And that he holds very dear because in marriage, he makes, yes, one man, one woman become one flesh. And so this is why, do you remember the apostle Paul? Bob did a great job at teaching us in Ephesians 5. In Ephesians 5, Paul talks about the role of the wife and a role of the husband. And then at the very end, in verse 32 of Ephesians 5, he says this. He says, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Who is the ultimate groom? Jesus. What is the ultimate bride? The church. And is there ever going to be a divorce between the two? No. So how incongruous is it then to say, I belong to the greatest bride ever, and I am in the union with Messiah where there will be no divorce, but I'm about divorce here and now. I'm about it here and now in my life. It makes us a hypocrite. Brothers and sisters, you and I have to take our marital commitments exceedingly seriously. Why? Because we're representing not just our name, but the name of the Holy One of Israel. That's the idea. And so, brothers and sisters, let us be those who, by God's grace and his power, keep our marital commitments. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to First Peter 4, verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3. Please turn your Bibles there. As you're turning there, I think about part of keeping our marital commitments means that we have to grow up and grow in the Lord. I remember some years ago, I was talking to a friend. He had gone to a high school reunion. And he said, it's interesting, as you grow and you get more aged in life, you go back to your high school reunion, and there's always a faction. It probably gets smaller maybe every year but there's always a faction of people who never grow up. In other words, if they were finding the next boyfriend and girlfriend at age 16, they're going to do it at age 46, they'll do it at age 56, they'll do it at age 66. And you look at them and you say, don't you ever grow up? Don't you ever get sick of carousing? Don't you ever want to be settled and have a partner for life, a spouse, and have children? But no, they never grow up. And I want you to see that that is antithetical to a biblical worldview. Notice what Peter says here in 1 Peter 4, three. Great wisdom for us. This is a verse that's been on my mind at times when I've been tempted to sin. And the idea is it slaps you says, haven't you done that enough? Aren't you going to grow up? 1 Peter 4.3, three says, for the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness carousing drinking parties and abominable idolatries hasn't it been enough it's time to grow in the lord we need to grow and as we grow in the lord we realize the beauty of being dedicated to our spouse that's part of christian maturity now why why is it so essential because adultery is a sin that will send us send us to the pit of hell In fact, remember the Apostle Paul said as much in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, he says, Such were some of you. That's the good news. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Dear ones, we as evangelicals rightly do point out sins on this list. We'll say, yes, homosexuals don't have a part of the kingdom, nor those who are idolaters or thieves, etc. But yet, evangelicalism often is tolerated adultery. Now, as I say that, you and I are not saved by our works, we are saved by faith alone. In Jesus Christ alone. But the idea is if you and I are engaged in adultery in our lives, if you and I are characterized by physical adultery, do we really believe the promises of God? That's what we're being challenged to look at in our scriptures today. Now, I know that there are people in here who have been married, divorced, and then remarried. I want to just say that there's forgiveness. I want you to know that in this message, there's no condemnation for there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You have a new slate. Your slate has been wiped clean. And that's the great news that we see in verse 11. Notice the great promise here. But so were some of you. Such were some of you. That was the way your old life was. But the moment you turned to Christ, you became faithful to your spouse. That's the goal in this message. Not to right the wrongs of the past, that's under the blood of Christ. But going forward, that you would be a one-woman man or a one-man woman in marriage. That's the idea. Okay, notice when he says, but you were washed and you were sanctified. Sanctified means being set apart. The idea is that Jesus Christ set us apart for his purposes when you and I were justified that is saved. The moment you believed, your sins past, present, and future were washed away. Perhaps there are some here today who need this. Perhaps there are some who are listening who need to have the forgiveness of sins. Why? Why do we need forgiveness of sins? Because the Bible is very clear that all of us have sinned in thought, word, and deed in rebellion against God. In fact, Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the news gets even worse when we know that the ultimate punishment for those who rebel against God is being cast into the lake of fire. We looked at that last week. And by the way, for those who want to reject the doctrine of hell, you're rejecting Jesus' words, not mine. It's Jesus who talked about the lake of fire. I can't think of any worse news than that, that we're rebels rebels against God and that you and I are going to be thrown into the lake of fire. But that's precisely why the good news of the gospel shines. The good news is that God sent forth his son, the son who existed as God and with God from all creation. At a point in time in history, through the virgin birth, he became a man. And he became a man so that he could live the perfect life that you and I could not. When you and I go against our commitments and our oaths, Jesus never did. Even when we are faithless, he remains faithful, it says, he cannot deny himself this jesus being truly god and truly man did for us therefore what we never could is live that perfect life so that that righteousness could be credited to our account so that we would have a righteousness before god but jesus didn't just live the perfect life he came to die a substitutionary death where he really did absorb the full measure of wrath for those who commit all these sins that you see on the screen and every one of us is guilty of some of them at least Every one of us. But Jesus paid off the debt. Jesus the just on behalf of us the unjust so that we might be brought to God. The proof that he did this is he was raised bodily on the third day which proves his claims. It proves that Jesus is the only way and that when he says he's the way, the truth, and the life, we can believe it why he was raised bodily from the dead. This Jesus ascended into the heavens where he's seated at the right hand of God. It's promised that he's coming again to bring wrath upon his enemies, but salvation for his people. And It's Jesus himself who commands all people to repent, to turn from idolatry, turn from spiritual adultery, physical adultery, and all sin to turn to him on his terms, which is faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And if you will trust in Jesus, you'll be cleansed from your sins. They'll be washed away, but you'll also be given a spirit, the spirit of the living God who will enable you to live a life that is pleasing before God, that you will finally be able to keep the commitments that you've made before God. That's what we all need. Today is the day to repent, trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ, be filled by the Spirit, and become one who by God's grace keeps your commitments. Now, I want to help people now today to understand conceptually different scenarios related to marriage. And so I want to talk about this overriding concept of keeping one flesh. That's going to be very helpful, and I'll talk about a few scenarios in the next next slide. But think about conceptually in marriage. We always want to preserve the union of one man, one woman becoming one flesh. We want to do that in our marriages, but we also want to be those who promote that and help preserve it. In other people's marriages. Now, I want to mention a passage again from 1 Corinthians, but let me set the context so you understand a little bit of what was going on in Corinth. Bob has talked about that, that at Corinth, the Corinthians had an over-realized eschatology. Now, that's a big mouthful. What does it mean? It means that they boasted in being spiritual in the sense that the physical no longer mattered, that they thought they were already in the kingdom because they were starting to deny the physical resurrection. Everything was spiritual. Therefore, what? Therefore, what they did in their physical marriages didn't really matter. It didn't matter so much anymore. And what Paul is going to say to them is, oh, yes, it does matter. So turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 3. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 3. This is a particular value to those who try to claim, well, I'm a Christian now, I'm just married to the Lord. Well, yes, you belong to the Lord first and foremost, but if you're married, you're still married. And so here, as Paul starts to address the various concerns of the Corinthian church, he's going to talk about what, in fact, marriage ought to be and the reason for it. Notice it says in 1 Corinthians seven one. notice the now concerning, the things about which he wrote, the term now concerning day. that's the same term Jesus uses in Matthew 24. It's a discourse marker. It shows us that, now Paul is addressing something that they've raised. It's a topic change. So now concerning the things with which you wrote about, he says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of, by the way, let me stop there for just a moment. What does he mean by that? Well, he means, yes, if you can remain single, it is true that you can be more dedicated to proclaiming the gospel and to be about the Lord's business. He does not deny that. But notice he affirms reality in verse 2. He says, but because of immoralities, that sexual immorality. He says, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill the duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. That's the physical duty. The idea is don't deprive one another lest they burn with lust. So Paul explains, yes, you should get married if you burn with lust, in fact, he goes on to say this very thing first Corinthians 7 9 through 11 Regarding the single he says, but if they do not have self-control Let them marry for it is better to marry Than to burn with passion. Let me stop there for just a moment. You remember last week. I talked about how Jesus acknowledged that to some it has been given The gift to remain single Because they can overcome the lust in their life But it's not true for everyone and so for those who can't control themselves, it is good to be married. Verse 10, he says, but to the married, I give instructions. But he says, not I, but the Lord. Stop there. Where did he get these instructions from the Lord? From what we're reading today in Matthew 5. What we will read in Matthew chapter 19. What, is, what did he learn from the Lord? That the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, that she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Brothers and sisters, notice here in blue, what does Paul teach? It's the same thing Christ did, that a wife should not leave her husband. Why? They're one flesh. Notice he says the same thing. A husband should not divorce his wife. Why? In marriage, they're one flesh. That's the idea. That's what we want to preserve in marriage. That's the concept. One flesh. They've become one in marriage. And so I think the parentheses here is particularly instructive. Notice, if she does leave, that is a woman, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. Why? Because if she gets united to another in marriage, she's committing adultery. We want to always preserve the original union between one man and one woman in marriage who become one flesh. That's what is being derived at here. Now, as I say that, let me come to a couple of scenarios. And these are scenarios that often come to us as pastors. And so I want to hit them there, and I want to look at it through the grid of keeping this one-flesh union in marriage. First scenario that we're often asked about as pastors is, say you have a divorced couple who both get remarried should they get back together. So take a man and a woman. They originally married. They did get divorced and they get remarried. Should they leave the marriage they're in and then get back together? No. No, the idea that we find in Scripture is not that you're to go to your past and try to right every wrong. But what repentance looks like in marriage is that the marriage that you're in, you remain faithful. You remain faithful to your spouse. That's exactly what we're learning here today. Whatever may have happened in your past, those things are washed away. They're under the blood of the Lamb. Today is the day to say, yes, I'm going to, again, make it an effort to be faithful to my one spouse, my man or my, my woman. That's the idea that we have. Now, second question that often comes to us as pastors is, let's say one spouse becomes a believer and the other remains an unbeliever. Should the believer leave? Should they get divorced? The answer is no. The answer is no and I'll show you where Paul says this. Turn your Bibles if you will to 1 Corinthians 7:13 through 14. 1 Corinthians 7, please turn your Bibles there, verses 13 through 14. And again, the principle that we're going to see is no you always preserve the one flesh relationship that you have in marriage. 1 Corinthians 7:13 through 14. Notice what Paul says about the believer who is now still yoked in marriage with an unbeliever. He says this, he says, And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and vice versa. The unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Now, what does this mean that you have a believer married to an unbeliever. And because they're married, the unbeliever is sanctified. Remember, sanctified comes from the term hagiazo, It means to be set apart. But is Paul saying that all you need in order to be justified before God, to be set apart, is simply to be married to a believer? You don't actually have to believe. No, he's not saying that. What he means is sanctified in the sense that the unbelieving spouse will be exposed to the word of god through the believing spouse think about it doesn't it say in romans 10:17 faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of christ so the idea is that the unbelieving spouse through having the scriptures upon their lips through studying the scriptures through having friends who study the scriptures who live out the scriptures they are a powerful testimony and who knows By God's grace, he may use the word of God to save the unbelieving husband or wife. Likewise, the children are going to hear the word of God. The children will hear the word of God. Why? Because of the believing parents. So that's the wisdom that comes from the Lord, from the Apostle Paul. And again, it's all built on this concept to keep the one flesh union that exists presently. If you're married to a believer, that's great. Keep that relationship till death do you part. If you're married to an unbeliever, keep that relationship until death do you part. Because again, God hates divorce. He wants to see one man, one woman become one flesh until death makes them depart. That's what we see in the scriptures. Now with that, I want to leave us with a teaching that we're going to come to once we get to Matthew chapter 19. It's probably Jesus' ultimate statement about the sanctity of marriage. Let me read this text, and then we'll close in prayer. In Matthew 19, 4 through 6, listen to what Jesus will say. It says, And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Stop there. Male, female. Not 62 different genders, or variations, male, female. Who is saying that? The Lord of glory, Jesus, the Holy One of Israel, the one who walked on water, the one who created all things. He's the one who's saying it. That's from Genesis one twenty-seven. Notice verse five. And he said, for this reason, here's Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Stop there. Notice there's no exception clause. There's no, well, unless you want to get a new model. Or you're sick of your spouse. No, they become one flesh. There's no exception clause. It's one flesh. Verse 6, he says, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together. Stop there. Who joined the two together? God did. God ordained marriage. God did this. He says, therefore what? Let no man separate. That's the idea behind marriage. Dear brothers and sisters, let us as believers in Jesus Christ grow a hatred of divorce because if we don't, you and I may succumb to it. And I would suggest to us that if you and I are going to be those who have healthy marriages, yes, we're going to protect other men and women made in the image of God. And we're also going to give great glory to God. Let me talk about the first. How do we protect human beings made in the image of God? by keeping our marital oaths. I remember a story years ago from R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul talked about in the garden, remember Adam and Eve, they realize after they sin for the first time that they're naked. I'll never forget R.C. Sproul said, in a real sense, marriage is that safe place for men and women to be naked again. And he says, there's nothing more damaging to a human being made in the image of God then for the spouse to say to their married partner, I've seen all that you are physically, emotionally, spiritually, and I'm done with you. The damage done to that spouse, someone made in the image of God, is incalculable. What's more, the way it affects the children. It is one of the most damaging things that can ever be done to people made in the image of God. Let us not, therefore, be part of that. But second, remember, Paul says in Ephesians 5.32, I tell you a great mystery. And the mystery he's referring to with the union of a man and a woman is that is an object lesson pointing us to the one-day future union of Christ and the church. How, dear brothers and sisters, can you and I belong to the ultimate bride who belongs to the ultimate groom where there will be no divorce, and yet practice divorce here and now ourselves. I would suggest to you that that is unbecoming a believer in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, let us by God's grace, therefore, be those who develop a hatred of divorce and a love for our spouse, all by his grace. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for forgiveness We thank you for the ability to have a clean slate in life, that we can turn to you and through your word live lives that are pleasing to you. I pray, Heavenly Father, for those that may be struggling out there in their marriage, that they would be reinvigorated to keep their oaths before you, realizing that honoring you is the most important thing, and therefore honoring their spouse. Lord, we pray that we'd be people who keep the commitments that we make in marriage. And that, yes, Lord, by your power and grace, that we'd be people of your book. That we'd be not just hearers of your word, but doers who bring you great honor and glory in our marriages, in our lives. We pray, only, Father, we'd also be a blessing to those around us who are struggling. That we may use the opportunity to proclaim your gospel so that they may have forgiveness of sins. That you would open up opportunities and prepare hearts that they may be saved and that they may have lives that honor you as well. We pray that we'd be this kind of people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.